In episode 6 of Parachute Candidate, I speak with Vice Admiral and former Chief of Staff of the Irish Defence Forces, Mark Mellet. Mark served for over four decades in the Irish Defence Forces, and since his retirement in September 2021, he is focused on leading Green Compass, a consultancy firm which specialises in tech innovation, climate change, offshore renewable energy, security and sustainability. In addition to this work, since September 2022, Mark has served as chairperson of SAGE Advocacy, a national service for older people. And in January of last year, he also is serving as chairperson of the Maritime Area Regulatory Authority Board. In addition, with his wealth of experience and a PhD in politics and law, Mark was appointed as adjunct professor in the University College Cork. Given today's geopolitical and environmental crises, his vision and experience is very much needed. We had a lot to discuss, but of course, as Mark grew up in Casabar, County Mayo, we briefly chatted about Mayo football. I hope you enjoy. First, Mark, thank you very much for being here. As I said numerous times to you, I've known you or known of you a number of years back, long before I got into the European Parliament as a recruit for the Reserve Defence Forces. And I've told you this many is the time. And anybody listening, which is what I hope will come out of this conversation, for me, of all the things that I've put my hand up and tried to challenge myself with, my time in the Reserve Defence Forces developed my character and my inner strength and values more than I think anything has ever has ever done. And if I was 10 or 15 years younger and a little bit fitter, I would be applying. And I say apply because I'm not ignorant enough to think that there's a great honour to be a member of the Defence Forces in all its forms. And I include reserves within that. And sometimes I think we take it for granted. Perhaps it's because we're a neutral state or perhaps because, I, I, I don't know, and, and as an American-born it's the complete opposite. You know, if you serve, you say your your national anthem every every class in elementary in particular, you look at a member of your family in the in the armed forces, and it's so different. And I'd love to hear your perspective on that because ultimately I think if we're gonna look at recruitment and retention, which I'm sure we'll discuss at some point, we have to look at ourselves to say, what is our value towards our defense forces? One of two things we have in common, we have male roots. And we have the Reserve Defence Forces. I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you were it not for the fact that I uh, also serve in the, the FCA, which is uh, now called the Reserve Defence Forces. I joined when I was 18 and I left four years later to join the cadets when I was 18. Um, so you can work the maths out yourself. I would have been a boy soldier at around 14, actually. Uh, I can admit that now, seeing as I am retired. But I mean, back in those early days, they were part of the formative uh, years that really, in many ways, influenced where I am today. And I remember as a as a kid, um, I used to be out in just north of my house in Castlebar uh, with the Castlebar four day walks, and we used to come up over Croke Moyle, and it was um, part of the cross country walks. I was a guide for those. Um, at that stage, I hadn't quite joined the FCA. I was only thirteen at the time, but um, it was just the kind of responsibilities that you took on as a kid back then. It was almost different to today. We, we actually, uh, youngsters got on and did things that in today we wouldn't even uh, countenance. And um, the fact that at 14 uh, I was able to join the FCA was really interesting. The fact that at 15 I was driving a truck, it, it really was a different time. 
But come back to that point, when I was on Croke Moyle, leading mainly um, Belgians and Germans and Dutch walkers, um, I used to always be fascinated at the way they were so interested in the environment. Like where I saw a bog, they saw moss and heathers and lichens. They saw all kinds of ecosystem that I just saw bog. And it's only decades later I've really come to understand how they valued that diversity. And and from the top of Croke Moyle, what was also interesting, you could look out to the west towards Clue Bay and you could see Clare Island. And I never realised at the time that, you know, the, the training I was getting with the uh, FCA was going to bring me to an environment that would uh, occupy me for 45 years because beyond... Clear Island was the open Atlantic Ocean where I was to spend most of my career, much of that career, if you like, at sea, looking back inwards towards our beautiful Mayo, in towards Eagle Island, in towards Ackle Island, in towards uh, Inish Turk, Inish Boffin, all the way along the west coast down towards the Blaskets and around uh, towards the south coast. A wonderful um, coastline. And when I wasn't able to see the actual coastline, I looked at the sea, and I often wondered what's beneath the sea. And, and I didn't know uh, back then when I was kids that I, I would really become intimately aware with what was below the sea. Beautiful cold water coral ecosystems, one of the richest vulnerable marine ecosystems in the European habitat, 600 metres below, spawning massive shoals of orange ruffy, fish that were swimming back then when I was a child. At the same time, the same fish uh, nearly 200 years earlier with Darwin and the Beagle, still alive because these fish survive up to 200 years. And if, if I am ever critical of the, um, the institutions in Brussels, I am critical of the common fisheries policy because it hasn't been very kind to our environment. It has for too long focused on the protein in the resource as opposed to the ecosystem. Now, it's changed. In, in recent years, it has changed, but a huge penalty has been paid for that. And in many ways, that's the parallel career throughout my decades within the, the Defence Forces as a naval officer has been this understanding of the environment and how critical it is to our survival as a species. Like We, we should live in agreement with the environment, not in competition with the environment. And unfortunately, I think the one thing I've learned in, in my generation is we've been very, very selfish in terms of how we've consumed resources uh, at a rate as if there is an ability to to be to to sustain and and the 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 chicken is coming home to roost because that's what's been changing our climate. Uh, before we move off, because I, I know your 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 work currently and all through your as you rightly pointed out, all through your defence force career was very much engrossed in climate, our energy, and what you can what you could see. But can I ask you? At any point, did you think of any other unit within the Defence Forces or was it always back to that young kid showing, showing people around looking uh, at the sea that you thought Navy was for you? My, my unit as an, an FCA or a member of the Reserve was a cavalry unit and I, I would have a great draw for the cavalry unit because in many ways they do point. They're, they're actually doing a reconnaissance um, and they're, they're ahead of the main force often in very challenging and risky environments. I suppose cavalry and special forces would go hand in hand in terms of their agility to get in, to gather intelligence and to get out. Now, special forces often 
have to um, stay there longer. But uh, my, my desire would have been to join the army. But I, um, when the chips fell, I, I was offered a cadetship in the Navy and I haven't looked back. And I think in many ways, um, one of the beauties about training with the FCA in Castlebar as a kid, um, I remember the um, commandant in charge, Mick Constantine. Mick Constantine, by the way, had served in, in uh, the Congo uh, around the time that the Jadaville event happened. I think he had been there at an earlier stage. Um, I didn't know that at the time, but Mick uh, ran a course for us over in Rosmina in uh, Westport for sailing. And so when I was going for my interview with the um, FCA or for the cadets, I was also able to sail. And I think that influenced um, the board uh, that was also looking for naval cadets. And I was after the naval cadetship. Uh, I joined just as I turned 18, and I've been there up to my retirement just over 18 months ago uh, with 45 years service. So um, Army would have been my preference, but in hindsight, the dividend of serving the Navy brought me all over the world. Uh, all South America, I brought a ship down to Buenos Aires. Uh, I was in Asia with the um, Nave when she sailed out there, uh, and also all over Europe with our ships at, at various stages. But perhaps the most um, enjoyable piece was delivering defense and security services in our home waters, um, protecting against counter-narcotics, trying to protect our fisheries, and also uh, protecting against anti-terrorism, which um, at the earlier part of my career was much more volatile with the likes of the Marita Anne and other interceptions we had to be uh, involved in. You know, when we look at careers within the Defence Force, I am uh, notorious for always saying, if you're interested in challenge yourself, if you're interested in seeing the world, being a part of a team like no other, being a part of the Defence Force, be it uh, permanent staff or reserves, is an exceptional pathway to open up that. And and just as you were talking there, you know, I know you're an awarded diver. Uh, you've served in the Lebanon and Afghanistan. You mentioned all, all, all your service there. How do you sell the message? Or do you feel you people within the Defence Forces should or need to sell the message about stepping into a career as, as a Defence Force member? To have a, a very open and... Um, creative mindset about the opportunities in the military. Um, there was a, a book written back, I think, in the, um, in the late 90s called The Postmodern Military. And the key theme in that was that today's um, soldier is, is not just a warrior. Uh, she's a diplomat. Uh, she's a scholar. They, they, they are, um, the career you pursue within the military is a tapestry. And uh, one day, you can be involved in a very challenging search and rescue. Um, the next day, you could be sitting, uh, getting ready to do uh, an information exercise in Kabul. Uh, another day, you could be rescuing a, a tree. And I tell that story because I was captain of a ship once, and um, we were on patrol on a Sunday, and I knew the team, uh, the ship's company, I was losing them because I was saying, why can't we just get on up patrol? It's a Sunday. We want to be home with our families. But our orders were such that we were not finished at patrol until the next uh, Monday or Tuesday. And I, I, next thing I heard a call on the radio, uh, a pan. A pan is a kind of, um, it's, a, it's a safety call. That was a large floating tree off the south coast. And that it was putting a warning out there for light vessels to stay clear. So I said to the ship's company, I said, let's go and rescue <laughs> the tree. So 
that's exactly what we did. And we turned, you know, boredom into uh, excitement and we found the tree and uh, we tried to, to haul it ashore and we couldn't um, get it in because it was so big, it was actually getting snagged in the shallow water and I was afraid of putting the ship aground. So anyways, what we managed to do was haul it up onto the afterdeck of the, the ship. And when I returned off patrol, I didn't realize it, but I was um, driving up the harbor and coming alongside at the oil wharf. And at the last minute, I looked back as I put the engines into a stern. And what the ship's company had done is they'd taken the ship, the tree, from lying on its side and put it standing up straight as if it was growing out of the ship. It was now taller than the mast of the ship. So you had this ship with a big, huge tree growing in the middle of it. But that was the, the, um, that's just the, the, the push and pull of, of uh, excitement about building a team and maintaining a team. And, um, but I mean... We, we did a lot more than rescuing trees. I mean, I, I remember our, we were involved in the Brian, um, probably one of the largest successful interceptions off the South Coast, breaking up an international drug smuggling team from Belgium, the Netherlands, UK and Ireland to had bring, bring in two tons of narcotics. And when I think about the dedication and the commitment of the, the divers and the boarding teams, you know, led by Declan Fleming, who was my executive officer and the likes of Martin Buckley, who is um, subsequently a, a bosun and coxswain with me. Great men at that time, because on that ship, uh, Ellie Orda, we only had men. There, was no, there were no barracks for women. Now, that's all changed since then, and we are now inclusive uh, across the Defence Forces. So it was just those kind of moments that you look at it from the point of view of purely in terms of an operation. But when you push a depth into it in terms of... of um, and excitement, all kinds of things happen in terms of interaction. And when you allow a growth mindset within your team, they can be the best in the world for giving you ideas as to how to go about something. And I remember, for instance, we had been chasing this smuggler, or sorry, this fishing vessel that had been catching fish right up off Rockall, just in our jurisdiction. And for, for years, he had get a, got away with it, just coming in, casting his night lets tens of miles of gill nets, a really nasty type of fishing. And he was catching tons and tons of monkfish. And, and what he was doing was just taking the tail of the monkfish and leaving the rest in the net, cutting the, the net off the head rope and throwing the net back into the seabed. So that kept on fishing as well for years afterwards. And I was trying to catch this guy for about three days and I was about to leave the ground. And I said to the exec, I said, listen, we're not going to be able to hold the team for much longer because we, we'd exhausted everything. And he said, no, the lads are with you and um, the boarding team are with you. And, and at that stage, we had women in the Naval Service as well. And our coxswain, um, Jenny Blackwell, was, was a female, great coxswain. And he said, we'll give him one more shot. And that evening, just before uh, dusk, we launched the rib with Jenny uh, driving the rib and the boarding team from 10 miles away. And we caught the trawler, uh, which was Portuguese in that particular case. And we caught him with all his illegal fishing gear on board, his illegal fish. And we estimated it was millions of euros of transaction in the previous number of years he had got away with without recording any of that fish. So I suppose the point I'm saying is that, um, you know, service within the military is not about an individual. It's about the team and it's about the interaction, about the, the mix of the team, the, the competency of the team, and it's about the diversity in the team in terms of the more diversity in the team, the greater the actual um, I, I, sense of cohesion you get. And, and it's that 
trying to avoid automatons and to enable perspectives that are different to feed into a mix. That's what gives you strong teams. And you can go a step further. You can have strong teams of teams where you know, they come together and build off each other. And that's, that's what you have, for instance, on a ship where you'd have a predominantly engine room staff, you'd have a, a deck staff for the, the boats, you'd have a gunnery staff for the gunnery system, you'd have a catering and supply staff keeping us all fed. And um, it's just, you know, and, and like osmosis, through the years, you soak this up and you, you leverage it in your, your leadership positions, always remembering that uh, it's about the, the, the newest member of the team and she or he being enabled to be themselves and to being able to blossom in the organization. That segues into a question, and we've talked over the last number of years on the work around diversity and inclusion and the sense of belonging that you instilled as deputy and then moving into chief of staff, being a part of the first Pride Parade, uh, if I'm right in saying that. And, and talk to me about, was it through your own leadership development, Mark, that you saw the emphasis had to be placed on diversity and inclusion, ensuring that women uh, were given the pedestal, that podium that they rightly deserve within the Defence Force. Was it other armies that you've seen or other Defence Forces, sorry, that you've seen around the world? Or was it a case of, you know, this this was the right thing to do uh, and, and, and the expectation was there? It was a eureka moment about 10 years before I became... Um, well, not, not maybe five, five to ten years. I, I was involved in establishing an, a research cluster with UCC, University College Cork, and Cork Institute of Technology, which is now a part of Munster Technological University. And I remember we were having an innovation workshop, and one of the postdocs in that workshop uh, said to me, "Had we ever considered using dynamic scheduling for the way we patrolled our ships?" And you know, I said back for a moment, what's dynamic scheduling? And, you know, as explained, was using the data from all your 30 years of previous experience, you know, where the fisheries were um, happening at particular seasons, where the drug smugglers were caught, you know, where the actual challenges were with regards to uh, search and rescues. Um, And, you know, I I said to myself, I've been in the Navy at that stage, I think up to about maybe 30 years, but I had never taught about this way, about uh, using data. And um, it, it was in the penny drop. That person who said it to me wasn't a mil- member of the military. The person had never been on a naval ship. Uh, the person, by the way, was a woman. And it just was then, it all clicked. And I said, it's a different perspective. That, uh, and that's what diversity is about. And it's about enabling those perspectives. And it was at that moment I looked back behind me and I looked at the service I was coming forward towards my time as, as head of Navy at that stage. And we had a Naval service at that stage it was about 95% male and about 5% female. And um, the, when I started looking at other uh, militaries, in particular likes of the Australians and the Nordics, they were making great advances, advances in terms of numbers of females. And it, for me, it seemed to me there was a piece of work to be done there. But there was a second question then. I said, you know, besides um, the male female divide in the organization what other communities are there what other perspectives are we missing and you know i remember somebody saying to me there was no there are no gays in the military and i you know i mean i I kind of was not back for a second and i was saying surely we're a reflection of society Um, and it's very hard to say you know how many gays are in society but 
listen, let, let, let's, let's say there is a percentage. And I said, there has to be. And I said, for that, don't, don't, and then they said, no, no, we have no gays. And we have a policy, don't ask and don't tell. Well, I said, that's an abdication. That's an abdication because we have a duty under law to actually ensure that we're completely inclusive. And if we want people to blossom and be themselves and to be comfortable in the workplace, we have to create conditions for them to feel valued in the workplace. And, and so that informed, I suppose, my thinking. I'd be very honest, it wasn't easy. You know, the early participation in Pride, there was a huge pushback from, from some quarters. And it was then, you know, I, I learned some lessons with regards to the, um, some of the, the traditional uh, homophobic um, attitudes that still prevail, and not just in the military, but in, throughout society. You just go on social media any day there. I, I, I remember being trolled by um, somebody who is well-known, a former journalist, who uh, was criticizing me uh, for you know, my, my, my stance on LGBT and other matters and putting up horrible uh, pictures. Uh, I remember I was shown on one uh, Twitter account with, dressed in my number one uniform, but covered in uh, makeup and uh, rainbow colors. And uh, it, it was... It was um, it was certainly, you know, the pushback was there. But that's what courageous leadership is about, is to continue to do that and not to resile from your belief in the requirement to create an environment that's inclusive for all of the personnel who serve in the Defence Forces and indeed for all of people in society. People should not for a moment feel uncomfortable in the workplace, nor should they feel uncomfortable walking down the street of their local town or their local village. The, the leadership you show, you know, in the position that you were and the time it takes for huge machines to change is extraordinary because to your point, you, that, that courageous leadership at, at the head has to happen uh, and to which you, you, you drove and you provided. And it's just always so frustrating that on social media or in, you know, the silent minority or the loud minority I should say the loud minority takes hold of a very serious issue and a changing of the tide um, uh, for organizations or society and, and creates creates splits and difficulties um, which is which is yeah. which is a testament that we have a long way to go uh, in terms of acceptance from all across society and, and and I say that for not just LGBTI communities but for women. Uh, for other minority groups, for biases and, and stigmas. I would have got a lot of pushback on the diversity and inclusion and the gender equality. I mean, somebody once said diversity is about being asked to the party. Inclusion is being about asked, being asked to dance. The, the gender equality side is something, it's not about political correctness, and it's not about trying to build an institution that's a, a better reflection of the society you defend, protect, and serve. It's not about access to an ep- extra 50% of the human resource. It's actually, it's about capabilities. It's about capabilities. You have, you have better uh, institutions. You have a stronger, more robust organization when you have that diversity in your decision-making. And, you know, I, I, I recall pushing this point and I, getting pushed back on it, but the evidence is clear. What's also clear in terms of from a security perspective, there's a there's an index, as you're probably aware, the, the gender gap index. I think it's the World Health Organization that maintains it. And gender gap is a measure of um, where women are not educated, where they're not part of the political system, 
where they're not a part of the employment or they're impressed, oppressed. They're kind of four main indicators. And wherever the gender gap is greatest, interstate and intrastate violence is greatest. And you can, you can look at those indexes in terms of the gender gap index and also the global peace index and look at the defaulters. And you'll find that they're the most insecure parts of the world where security is really challenging. And um, so we've, we've, we've a long road to go. Uh, and we have some distance to go in Ireland in terms of gender equality as well. Um, and, and not least in terms of my own institution, my own former institution, Defence Forces. And 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 uh, politically, you know, there are so many aspects uh, that 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 journey is moving, and or or in other cases hasn't hasn't even started. You you mentioned there um, security, peace, and the various instabilities that that we have in in countries and. And I often find myself, particularly when I do question and answers with young people in schools, when they say, well, the war against Ukraine, it's like, well, the, uh, the, the, the Russian aggression towards Ukraine and, and the war um, there, but it's not just that war. It, there is multiple wars worldwide. I could even say in some cases, people have their own wars inside their own heads when we talk about mental health and, and, and the wellness space. Um, and, and I often like to give just a different perspective there, but I believe the big, the big, if we're going to call them big items, big areas, big focus points worldwide, not just at a European level to which Ireland feeds into, um, will be uh, defense and security and peace, uh, migration, our energy security, and of course, within all of that is our climate. And I'd, from from your perspective, what do you think the biggest threats are? To Ireland or the European Union, in security and in peace and in in defence. If I go back to that youngster on the top of Croke Moyle in Mayo, looking out at the Atlantic, we, we were in a very kind of uh, unilateral world where Ireland was a small country, an island on the frontier of Europe, an island behind an island. There was very little connection between us and the UK. The EC, we were not a member of the European community. We, the EU hadn't been even conceived. But um, what was happening, however, you know, from the lessons of the Second World War is certainly some leaders had started thinking. And the likes of Robert Schuman had conceived the idea of economic ties. Um, in fact, in the aftermath of the Second World War, uh, the US had pumped billions of dollars as part of the Marshall Plan to reconstruct Europe which you know, to, to some degree seems counterintuitive, but it was about constructing the states, uh, many of them who were the aggressor in the, the uh, Second World War. But what was happening was a framework of multilateralism that actually for, for decades has been at the center of one of the greatest security blocks in world history, that is the creation of the European Union. And notwithstanding the Balkan Wars and the lead up, obviously, to the Ukraine War, they, they've given significant or extraordinary uh, security. In, in recent years, however, we begin to see some of the pressures that are beginning to fracture that. The question with regards to a sense that Europe is not saying its way for defence. Um, the question with regards to uh, perhaps the need uh, to actually have strategic autonomy in the European Union, and I can come back to that point, um, and and actually, of course, the the uh, I suppose the more pervasive 
uh, infiltration of society from uh, the likes of uh, some major states like the Russian Federation in terms of their espionage activities in various countries and also the threat to democratic principles through use of cyber or hybrid techniques. All of that has created a cocktail of a, a worry in the context of where we're going. And, and then lump on top of that, if you like, the, the refocusing of the U.S., from a kind of transatlantic uh, site to almost a, a focus towards Asia and China and that competition between uh, US and China, which has left Europe you know, with that question of its requirement to become more capable in terms of defense and security. And this idea of strategic autonomy, which is pushed by the French quite a bit, um, is is critically important, and it really came to the fore uh, at the start of the Ukrainian war. Where we found our total dependency on Russian Federation uh, fossil fuel, uh, hydrocarbons in terms of oil, and hydrocarbons in terms of gas. And and I suppose one of my conclusions: you cannot have strategic autonomy unless you have energy security. And that's where I suppose the drive towards renewables has really come to the fore because. Europe doesn't necessarily have um, the the amount of alternative energy. And in any case, alternative energy is producing so much um, challenges in terms of either nuclear or uh, fossil fuel-based energy is is driving the the carbon temperature. So the the point I'm getting to is that um, Europe needs to look at its capacity in terms of its capabilities and its culture around defence and security. Individual countries, I often say, that have sovereignty and sovereign rights, sovereign rights that are not upheld are more imaginary than real. So they're like property rights. You have to uphold them. In the same way, European Union as a collective has to have a common purpose in terms of its approach to defence and security. And the the reality is that when you look at the challenges in, uh, I suppose, theatres like Africa, no one state is going to be able to deal with them on their own. It's going to be through a multilateral framework. It's going to be through a, a mission that has preferably a UN mandate and multiple state involvement. And so that ability to work together to actually be able to, to protect each other is a critical component of that. So we've moved from that kind of single unilateral state approach to defense that was there when I was a kid to a requirement for a more co- cooperative multilateral outlook in terms of how you deliver defense and security services and that that need to actually be able to to work with others and and it shouldn't come as a surprise by the way because what we've moved from those days when i was a kid is from kind of national economies to a globalized economy today so in other institutions it's perfectly acceptable to collaborate you know and so it should be no different in terms of defense and security and again, correct me if I'm wrong, I, I really struggle, and I know this this debate and this argument is coming down, particularly in upcoming elections, because we're living with war very close to the borders of the European Union. But this belief system, when I hear, you know, the EU army, and it's about boys and girls marching across in the same uniform and creating this superpower, which is often where the extremists left and right, in my views, uh, takes takes hold of this conversation. 
Whereas I bring, I, I, I often dis- discuss and debate in a very practical sense. I, I believe, I might be speaking untrue of myself, we are an island off the European Union. We now have a third country between us and the EU. We have to, or we had previously leaned on the likes of the United Kingdom for data and support when, and co- collaboration when we talk about human trafficking, when we talk about uh, peacekeeping in terms of migration, various forms. And please, Mark, jump in here if, if I'm way off. And then when you look at the flip side of where the Ukrainian war with the, uh, from Russia began, you know, I, I, I spoke to women, Ukrainian women, who were, who were fleeing the likes of Kiev at the start. And we're, we're, we're going to ATMs to take out cash in order to flee and Russia blocked all of the ATM. So access to financial support simply weren't there. Um, so war has become, and, and security in my area, defense in my eyes, has become not just about, you know, this this EU army marching. It's it's far more advanced than that. And I mean, you know better than I than I in terms of what I what I'm saying. But am I right in that practicality approach? Or, you know, what do you say when people have this? I think um, first of all, we, we're we're an island behind a third state. I think there is the the piece around the um, uh, reality with regards to the change circumstances post Brexit. But just going back to, if you like, good neighbours, um, we we should foster a relationship with our neighbours that is mutually supportive. You know, uh, when we leave our house here in Carrigaline and Cork. We often leave a key with the neighbour in case something happens and somebody has to come in. You know, the the reality is that uh, in the new architecture that is going to be there post Brexit, we we need to, from a national point of view, give our play our part within the institutions of common security and defence within the EU. But we shouldn't forget that uh, our nearest neighbor, nearest neighbour is no longer in the EU. That doesn't mean that we do, we shouldn't have a relationship from a defence and security point of view. There are there are, a, a, I suppose, efficiencies to be had by actually looking at the common threats that we have between us. And and the, the reality is, if we're not cohesive between states, that scene will be exploited by potential enemies, not least of which would be the likes of the Russian Federation. So it's critically important, not only within a multilateral framework of the EU, that we, we pay good attention towards the development of common security and defence policy and actually actioning in that. And a point I would say on that too, which is a, a subtlety that often is missed, I, I don't agree with the concept of um, a European army, but I do agree with the concept of um, an army of Europeans. And what I mean by that is the ability for the sovereign decision with regards to participation to remain with the national governments, but within the framework then of a multilateral approach on common security and defence policy. And and that could easily, you know, amount to um, an army of Europeans or an element of Europeans uh, being used as a narrow to actually deal with a, a crisis response in, in, let's say, a state wherever, whereby there is a UN mandate to go and have an intervention. Or maybe at a future point, there may not necessarily be an EU, a UN mandate whereby it's just a humanitarian assistance operation whereby the time isn't there to actually get that mandate and yet there are atrocities with regards to uh, civil society uh, being committed and somebody has to 
uh, intervene sooner rather than later. So the it's a it's a very it's a political area. Uh, I'm not advocating for um, you know real sudden changes. Institutions change in small steps, but I, I do think certainly the debate that has been led by the government recently in the context of it, the international security and how we will participate in that is timely. And it is something that we need to look at in the context of our relationship with the EU, but also our relationship with our nearest neighbour, the UK. Can you talk to me a little bit about, just before we move on to energy uh, and, and and the role that you feel as as a country and then as a European Union we will play. But I just wanted to pick up on the response over COVID because we dealt with it in terms of, fortunately, I feel, uh, as an EU block in terms of the movement of PPE gear and, of course, vaccines. But behind all the scenes was also the work of our uh, defence force working in tandem around disinformation or misinformation. And I'd love to get your sense because as, as chief of staff at that time, where the whole world stopped, you guys kept turning away to making sure security was was seen and felt. I have huge respect from Paul for Paul Reed, who was the chief executive of the HSE from that time, and uh, Paul reached out to me just as this story was um, breaking. And I have to say, the initial statistics were frightening in terms of the uh, potential mortality rate uh, if some measures were not taken. And um, we worked hand in glove in terms of our capacity to, first of all, do kind of pop-up testing stations. And one of the early sites, you might recall, was the ships on Sir John Rogerson's Quay in Dublin. And, And, you know, that capability was a legacy of our experience in the Mediterranean, whereby we had spent the previous number of years intervening in terms of irregular migration rescue operations and as part of that you had to protect the ship's company when you're rescuing large numbers that sometimes a virus uh, would knock the ship out if if it was a unknown or unexpected so you might have recalled you would often see the members of the navy at that time wearing ppe personal protective equipment Um, it wasn't because they were precious it was simply was it was a an enabler for the operation and there was no point in us picking up, you know, a flu virus or uh, an Ebola virus or, or something else uh, and having to come off mission uh, because of that by protecting the crew and having what we, we had a, a citadel arrangement on the ship uh, with a green, amber and red zone. Uh, we, we actually didn't have any infections of any of those operations. And throughout that period, we rescued 24,000 people in the Mediterranean. Coming back from that, that capability and that experience then was of critical importance in terms of the first testing centres we stood up within the military. Uh, and we, we stood those in, up on the naval ships in Sir John Rogerson's Quay, subsequently the Army, which um, Aviva Stadium, and elsewhere. Uh, and these proved to be hugely successful. Um, we complemented the HSE's, HSE's uh, testing centres throughout the country. And then we moved on to supporting the vaccination centres uh, obviously, we supported the logistics in terms of getting the distribution of supplies as they came in from mainly from China at that time to keep the machine going. But it was, uh, it, and, and it was really a great call into arms by government in terms of a, a very strong cross-cutting team established at the centre, led by Taoiseach's 
that actually gave that leadership to deal with the issues that arose. Um, there is obviously a lessons learned uh, process at present. There are areas that will be examined into the future uh, as to is there learning we can actually roll into the future to make us better should there be such an event again. And um, that learning is there in terms of certainly from the defence forces. We've had a lot of learning from that. And I'm sure throughout the institutions in the state, there's been a lot of learning from that. But I mean, that was an example of why you have um, an insurance policy like your defence forces is to be able to contribute to the institutions of the state to deal with the unexpected. And um, and we did just that. I, I mean, one of the things I think that often get, get lost, unless you're directly connected to members of the defence forces, is the amount of other work that goes on. You know, like that, you, you, reminding us of the, the work of the defence forces stepping in and and working through COVID, when we talk about extreme climate changes like flooding, like the movement of goods, like the movement of people, like there's so many different aspects that when you go looking, the defence forces step up and, and take charge. Your passion, your interest and your drive around security and climate, um, because they go hand in hand in, uh, with energy also. Like, where do you think and where do you see Ireland's role, Europe's role playing in this? When you talk about and we see extreme temperatures in Europe, uh, forest fires, uh, what's happening now at the, we're on the 17th of August recording this in Hawaii. There's extremism everywhere. And, and we as humans have to take responsibility and then action in order to protect our climate and, and humans and everything that lives on this world. I, I would love to hear your thoughts on that. We have an extraordinary mountain to climb in terms of uh, where we are at present. We're, we're at 1.2 degrees. The Paris um, Agreement said we should endeavour to use all our good offices to, to prevent us going beyond 1.5. I think it's generally accepted we're going to go beyond 1.5. And we already see the impact in terms of the current levels of carbon in the atmosphere, the consequential global warming in terms of uh, air temperature. Uh, there are real, as we speak, worrying indicators with regards to a massive spike in sea temperature, uh, completely uh, unexpected in terms of the rate of that climb, and also in, in other environments like the Antarctic, where there is a significant reduction in ice cover there that is uh, unprecedented. So all of these point towards the um, the predictions in terms of ARS 6, which is assessment report 5 and 6 from the IPCC, the International uh, Panel on Climate Change. They've made these predictions. They've identified this as coming down the track. We now have the clear evidence that it is here. There is no place for the climate deniers to hide. And yet we have left ourselves with a very tight timeline to respond. So Ireland has its climate action plan. It has its targets in terms of how it can decarbonize. There are kind of two tracks, if, if you like, to how we get energy. Track one is continuing with fossil fuels, which is going to continue pumping carbon into the atmosphere. Going back to that hill in Croke Moyle, when I was a kid, I was breathing 313 parts per million carbon then. Today, I'm breathing 420 parts per million, and that's rising. And that's part of this that's blanket that actually has given us this global warming. We need to decarbonize. We need to stop putting carbon into the air, which we're still doing at 37 billion metric tons a year, and we need to bring that down to zero. And the target for that is 2050. That's the mountain we have to climb. 
So we need alternative energy sources. Ireland has an extraordinary opportunity in that it is so close to one of the richest accessible renewable energy resources on the planet. Um, it is uh, almost a million square kilometers where we have sovereignty or sovereign rights. And the potential to harness this in the first in instance would be wind, uh, but there will be opportunities with other technologies, I think, in due course, such as wave and tidal, and to actually satisfy our domestic requirements in terms of electrification of the grid, uh, using surplus electricity from offshore renewables to produce green hydrogen, to bolt that green hydrogen in with carbon we capture out of the sky and make e-fuels um, that will keep aircraft going or keep heavy um, agricultural machinery going or other areas that can't be electrified. And then the surplus energy, either to uh, export that to Europe, or I believe by the time we really are in this space, carbon capture technologies will really be refined and we'll be in the business of carbon, carbon capture and sequestration actually trying to take all of that carbon out of the air as quickly as we, pos as we possibly can because the environment we're living in now is exactly as you have said, climate fires in Europe, climate fires in, in the Americas, um, and the also added potentiality of unpredictable sea level rises, lots of uh, ice cover, release of permafrost methane, all in a cocktail uh, driving towards particular tipping points, some of which we may already have passed. Some of, uh, you, you mentioned climate deniers, some some parliamentarians, unfortunately, right across the political houses, often use people as this, what will happen if, or, you know, cl climate migration shouldn't be included in migration agreements and, and essentially the safety of moving of people. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on that because... If you look at the likes of Africa's and further afield, there is climate disa disasters, there is famine, there is extreme dr drought because of, of our climate abuse. And as a world, we have to deal with that if we are going to reach any target. And and, and what is your thoughts on that? Because of your, your own experience in terms of peacekeeping within the Mediterranean and further afield, I, I really do feel the bunt of this will be felt by by people who who are currently living in extreme poverty uh, and are facing this extremism unduly. One of the decisions in, in the last COP was the actual compensation fund. It's exactly allied to the point you're making because many of these societies are the least responsible in the context of carbon emissions, and yet they're bearing the greatest bunch in terms of impact from climate change. Um, there are other elements there that are, are sensitive, but they, they're in reality facts that where you have significant population increases and also then a reduction in resources in terms of water table, in terms of um, food resources, all placing challenges on communities. And even traditional manners, and we've seen that in, in the likes of Mali, where you would have Fulani herders um, now arming themselves with um extremist groups for their security, uh, Dogan farmers similarly creating the tension that is there. And, and there is a climate element to this because for thousands of years, herders and pastoralists were able to move unencumbered across large swathes of the um, Sahel. They can't do so as easily anymore. So they're, they're now forced into these situations. Either they change 
their traditional lifestyle or else they get uh, build up an element to give them the security that they need uh, or they actually um, become part of what will become increasingly a challenge for all of the world, irregular migration. Some parts of the world will simply be uninhabitable in the coming years. That's, that's, that's not maybe, that's a fact. We are already seeing it in some places whereby the, the change in temperature, and it's not, you know, deniers will always say there were periods in the past where there were high temperatures. The difference now is the rate of change in such a, a short timeline in the last hundred years has just been extraordinary. That kind of 33% re- increase in carbon in my lifetime, uh, which will continue to rise. Because even if we stop, you know, putting carbon in to the air, the legacy piece, the, the kind of um, the, the, the lag before that impact is felt, uh, before that carbon that's already in the atmosphere is dissipates or is absorbed, and by the way, a huge amount, nearly 25% of it has been absorbed by the ocean, uh, which is becoming acidic. And that's really challenging for um, huge uh, amounts of fisheries that in many cases are part of the sustainable livelihood of coastal communities in many of these countries that were, were, um, are, are also impacted by increasing temperatures. So it's a cocktail, Maria, of, of significant um, wicked problems that are, are really, really challenging. It's going to require leadership across the board to actually bring this along. It also requires individuals to make their own decisions uh, that are focused on uh, being more sustainable. And and some of those are around, you know, our our um, addiction to conspicuous consumption. We are consuming resources uh, as if there is no tomorrow. Well, the reality is we cannot uh, continue to consume resources like this and uh, maintain the lifestyles that we have. There will be a, a shock, and uh, there are some very depressing papers there uh, that you can read, um, uh, w- w- which will point towards you know the potentiality for potential civil disorder. But certainly, you know those of us who are actually in the business of trying to at least make an impact on the um, the energy system move from a from carbon-driven energy sources to uh, renewable energy sources, we have to continue to give that leadership and move as expeditiously as possible to make that uh, a reality. And, and Ireland has done that with its first round in the Irish Sea. We'll have an over, another ORES later this year, offshore renewable energy support scheme. I don't know what that auction will look like. Uh, and we will move on then to an AG, a, a, a regime that will see us move to the southwest and the west coast in terms of renewable energy opportunities. And there's a significant potential for a green revolution for Ireland around these technologies. Do you see that where, as a country we're, we're, we're shifting to? Because I know you had said uh, before, uh, um, I think it was in March of last year, Ireland could play a key role in ensuring Europe's security independence. And that's very much based off in, uh, from my understanding, around that energy security, as well as being big actors within within uh, addressing our climate crisis, we we have to first of all ensure that we get the supply chain right here in Ireland. We have to get the developers in who are seeing that our policy direction is fit for purpose, and we have to build the industry. We have a long journey to go before we're we're really net exporters of energy. 
but that that can come in the decades ahead. Um, there will be obviously a flattening of the grid through interconnectors because you know if the wind is not blowing, we'll have to draw on an energy from other sources, uh, and that would be either through um, connectors with UK or uh, inevitably with France. But I think if you look at it from the point of view of the current grid requirements, we need about seven gigawatts to keep the state going. We need another seven gigawatts for the likes of uh, e-fuels uh, through green hydrogen and uh, environmentally friendly fuels that would keep aircraft going just from the Irish domestic market. And um, probably a similar amount in terms of seven gigawatts with regards to um, other types of energy requirements in terms of maritime transport, uh, heavy farm machinery and, and so on. That's 21 gigawatts before we start exporting energy uh, net. So I, I think we need to build our programs around that um, because aviation uh, will need to have some source of sustainable aviation fuel. And the more that we can add value to, let's say, uh, the electrons that we capture around the Irish coast, turning them into e-fuels, the more the economy can uh, grow around that. So it's a, it's a win-win. You're obviously an advocate for lifelong learning. Because yeah. after spending decades within within one uh, one sector, you're shifting your well. I can't even say you're shifting your focus because I've had a conversation with you well over four years ago, and you were talking around, and you had been actively working on renewables and energy security at that point, uh, as well as diversity, as well as multiple others that that we've discussed. You know, for for you, where do you see your your next journey or your next career focus on? Is it solely on our security within energy or further afield or or where where are you planning? I.e., will you be taking over the Mayo team at any point around leadership and so that we can win the Sam Maguire? <laughs> we will get there with the Mayo team and uh, and I think we, we just need to believe in ourselves. I, I remember a few years ago when I was Chief of Defence having a great engagement with the team and... Um, they're extraordinary men, e- extraordinary leadership there. I think, you know, from the point of view of where I'm going, I, I have my company, which is Green Compass. Green Compass is in advising on the sustainability side. The government appointed me six months ago to be chairman of the Maritime Area Regulatory Authority. So I'm working with the board to to ensure that institution under the leadership of Laura Bryan, who is the chief executive, is fit for purpose and is driving on in terms of consenting for the offshore renewables. I'm also chair of SAGE Advocacy Board. SAGE Advocacy is advocating for older people and for uh, vulnerable adults. And that's a huge area which really my eyes have been open to in terms of responsibilities uh, within society to care for our older people. The, um, the legislation that has recently been enacted in terms of the Assisted Decision-Making Capacity Act and much of it led by the likes of uh, Patricia Rickard Clark, who has been a real uh, advocate for this over uh, the, the last decade. And bringing that to play, we need not now need to make sure that we provide that support to uh, older people um, in terms of having an advocate. Because up to the point of that legislation, we were depending on late 1800s Lunacy Act, making people wards of court, taking away their ability to make decisions for themselves. It was, it was, uh, it was unbelievable in a civil society that we were doing that. And I think um, 
So, and, and I suppose the final piece, I will continue to maintain my engagement in the security environment. I, one thing I, I have said, and it goes back to your point with regards to lifelong learning, the rate of change is so fast, you know, today. When I was on that hill in Crokemoil as a youngster, IBM, you know, about 55 years ago or 50, just over 50 years ago, had built, a, no, 60 years ago nearly, had built a computer. It, it could hold one megabyte of memory and it weighed one ton. It would mean that your iPhone today would weigh in greater than 26,000 tons. That's the change in terms of technology. So every moment of every day, new technologies and new ways of doing things are being created. You need to immerse yourself into this continuous creation of knowledge. It's in technology, but it's also in systems and processes. And you need to actually inform yourself, you know, uh, is there a better way for us as uh, individuals or as society to actually progress? And that can only come around from uh, making sure you're, you have an attitude of lifelong learning. Um, and the final point I would say on that, you also need to recognize that um, nobody has all the answers. You know, the answers to challenging problems are often outside your immediate circle. So the greater you can collaborate and create those kind of diverse teams, those inclusive teams, where it's across the diverse elements of culture, creed, ethnicity, uh, sexual orientation, gender, where, where you actually create and nourish those teams, the stronger you will have the platforms to deal with the uh, complexities and the opportunities that you're faced on the road. Thank you very much. Before we wrap, I just wanted to ask just two quick questions that might feed in, but please, please ignore it if not. The greatest misconception of the defense forces for you, what would they be or what is it? It's, it's, well, it's a misconception. It's, it's a, an institutionalized mindset that defense sits over in a corner separated from a whole of government approach to defense and security. We, we need to actually institutionalize a mindset that defense and security of a sovereign state is a whole of government, a whole of society act, not the uh, duty of a, a small community in a small department in government. That, 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 and I think that's shifting, uh, but it is about all the institutions having a, a mindset that is around security and and defense that's that needs to be across all of government that's the 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 difficulty i have seen in my time that uh, is is needs to change and the greatest misconception about where we are right now with with our climate crisis and the emergency of such i think that um we have not uh, fully understood the damage and the conspicuous consumption that our society, my society, my generation has committed, uh, where we have, for all intents and purposes, driven an intergenerational sabotage of resources that should have been sustainably managed for our children and our grandchildren. That's the perversity that's there. And it, it, it actually is... I, I, I have a granddaughter, she's, she's just... Um, out in the next room there, I, I, I'm beginning to feel somewhat emotional about that very point because I don't know what's in store for her. She's two years now. When she's 60, I do not know what's in store for her 
because of the short sight, uh, the, the, the conspicuous consumption, the overconsumption of my generation. And where you are now in terms of the future and peace. And I say that a bit, I, I, I often say equality is hard fought and very quickly lost. And there seems like we're on a tidal plate of change around our belief system that peace is just forevermore. Uh, and it's and it's not because you see shifts to change, you see the drive of misinformation online and offline. You see often, I believe, rollback on rights. And I'm not just saying from an Irish or European context; I'm saying worldwide. Like, what is your belief system on that in terms of misconceptions of 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 that we could? I, I would imagine you don't think we could be or we can afford to be laggards about it. I, I don't think based off the conversation we just had there. I think uh, Robert Kagan a few years ago wrote a book called The Jungle Grows Back and and in that he 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 kind of positions society and civilized society on a continuum from kind of barbarism to sophisticated institutions and and that's the tension that we're 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 on that journey trying to move towards um more sophisticated institutions which are where values are institutionalized um where there's a greater understanding for instance, of our interdependency with nature, uh, that we need to live in agreement with nature and understand nature as being part of the cosmos, which also allows us to go even a step further to really have an understanding about God. Uh, and there are real um, reflective pieces there. I'm reading a book at the moment called The Unbearable Wholeness of Everything. It, it really just makes you reflect on what is God. and um, I think we could do well to spend more time just reflecting on um, our part in this cosmos. Uh, we are not masters. We are just a piece of the ecosystem. And the, the sooner we understand that our job is to be in that ecosystem, not responsible for ex externalities, negative externalities, where we're damaging uh, other parts of the system around us, not responsible for consuming parts of the system around us because ultimately that is actually killing the system in which we live. So there's a real kind of philosophical piece there. Um, so Kagan makes the point, the jungle grows back. Every now and again, we, we go backwards. And we're, we're probably at, at a point now where uh, we may well be slipping backwards because institutions are not as strong as they should be. We're certainly not moving at the pace we should be in terms of dealing with climate change. And um, I think, you know, there are, there are some rough, uh, I suppose, rough decades ahead for us all uh, to, to try and um, address some of the actual perversities that um, have happened over the last number of decades. There are many areas Mark tapped into from its experience and vision, from sea security, to serving one's country, to growing a team that is reflective of a just and equal society, to answering the toughest questions we face today. There is also a lot covered in terms of leading teams in rescuing over 24,000 people in the Mediterranean, to the impact and infrastructure that went into protecting us, you and I, all communities across Ireland around COVID-19, to his understanding and deep knowledge of our climate crisis. I hope you were left to understand the impact we all make, be it as a consumer, 
team member, a community person, a person serving in the Defence Force or any force. Let me just share my final thoughts uh, and something that I have been really thinking about since our conversation. My belief is we must honour and celebrate our members of the Defence Force. That's why I was really encouraged and wanted to speak to Mark about his experience as a reservist and as a permanent member. After this conversation, I, I, I was deep in thought about the different personnel who have served, like Mark, 30, 40, 45 years and beyond. And in my eyes, the respect and admiration for each member desperately needs to grow. Some of the work each member of the Defence Force does was shared here in this conversation with Mark, but there is so much more. And I hope you speak with someone who serves or has served or look up the unseen work each Defence Force member contributes to our country. I hope you took from this conversation as much as I got from Mark and I hope we show up for each other a lot better.